When John Wesley was a missionary in Georgia, Governor James Oglethorpe had a slave who stole a jug of wine and drank its contents. The governor then decided that the slave would be beaten mercilessly. When John Wesley found out about this, uh, he came to the governor and said, uh, Governor, you need to go easy on your slave. Governor Oglethorpe said, I want vengeance. I never forgive. To which John Wesley said, Well, then I hope to God, sir, that you never sin. In the early days of America, perhaps uh, mercy wasn't shown all that readily, at least in uh, some circles. I I know for a fact that in the days of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, mercy was even despised. Uh, There was a uh, saying among the uh, Romans, mercy is a disease of the soul. Uh, To the Greeks, mercy was a sign of weakness. Uh, They admired courage and justice and discipline. Anyone that was merciful was just weak. Uh, Aristotle was said to say that the slaves owned by the Greeks were their mere tools. And if in the course of a slave working for you, your tool had lost its usefulness, you as the master had the right Uh, to send your slave to the arena where your slave could be eaten by a uh, wide-jowled beast of some sort. Uh, Or, according to Aristotle, if you found that your slave was not functional anymore, uh, you could get rid of your slave the way that you might get rid of a broken hammer or a rusty plow. Babies in that culture weren't treated much better than slaves. Uh, In the Roman Greek culture, if a mother gave birth to a daughter or to a deformed son, uh, the father had the right legally uh, to cast the baby out into the elements, knowing that as the baby was exposed, it would likely die. And there would be no repercussions for the father if he did that. And to have mercy on an enemy was unthinkable. The only good enemy in the Greco-Roman world was a dead enemy. And it's uh, quite evident as you look at what they wrote that that's what they believed. Now, in our culture, this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, it comes across a little bit softer. We're a little bit more inclined to show mercy, but especially to the underdog. In our society today, if you're the equal dog or you're the top dog, we're not quite so inclined to show mercy uh, to those folks. We'd just soon let those folks fry in our culture today. So I I think as we look at this uh, beatitude of Jesus, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, uh, as these words would have had significant import for the people of Jesus' day, there's reason for us today to ask ourselves, who indeed are the merciful And then as you look at the last part of this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's something conditional about this beatitude. And the second question we're going to ask today is, well, what's the condition? What is it that I have to do in order to actually receive something according to this text? And what in the world does that mean? Well, first of all, to the meaning of the word mercy, who are the merciful? If we look at the word that Jesus Christ used, which is a translation of a Hebrew word uh, throughout the Old Testament for mercy, uh, we know from this word that it's more than sympathy. Uh, 
Uh, it's more than feeling bad uh, for folks. Uh, within the uh, meaning of the Hebrew word and the Greek word, it means to get inside the other person's skin until we see with their eyes and think with their mind and feel with their feelings. Uh, as the uh, French have said it, uh, to know all is to forgive all. But the challenge, of course, is that we're not going to know all until we make a deliberate attempt uh, to get in the minds of the uh, other people around us, to understand their hearts, understand something of their uh, perspective. And those who look at us as uh, evangelicals in our interaction with the people with whom we don't agree will say that the fundamental failing within the evangelical community is exactly at this point. We're quick to condemn the people that are doing those dastardly deeds, those behavioral faux pas that we don't approve. But we don't know too much about them, really. We don't know what motivates them. We don't understand how they're thinking. We may say to ourselves, how can they think with their uh, their thinking? And then as a result, it may be a little bit more difficult for us to be merciful to those folks. Well, if mercy is more than sympathy, it's more than pity. Pity is a feeling uh, that we can have when we see something that uh, grabs us emotionally. Uh, these words, the Greek word and the Hebrew word, uh, are more than that. Because mercy is the act of doing something to help someone. If you just feel bad and you don't do anything about it, well, you haven't shown biblical mercy yet. I came across a cartoon uh, this last week of Two Turtles. They both were concerned about where God was in the midst of the troubled world in which we live. And one uh, uh, turtle said, sometimes I'd like to ask God why he allows poverty and famine and injustice when he could do something about it. The other turtle says, I'm afraid God might ask me the same question. Uh, if you look at Scripture and say, what has been God's plan for showing mercy uh, to the world, well, a lot of it rests in you and me. He's counting us on us being his hands and his, uh, his feet. Now, as we ask ourselves, well, what really is this mercy? Um, probably one of the best illustrations I uh, came across is a story of Victoria uh, Rovolo, a woman 45 of New York. She was voted the most inspiring woman of 2005 uh, by BeliefNet. And probably for good reason. Victoria was driving to her niece's voice recital when she was passed by another car driven by 19-year-old Ryan Cushing. Cushing had just been out with five teens. They had stolen a credit card. And they had gone to the store and purchased a lot of items, including a 20-pound frozen turkey. And as they were passing Victoria's car, Ryan got the crazy notion to pick up the frozen turkey heave it out the driver's side of the window and uh, her car was coming from the other direction so it added to the the speed and that 20 pound turkey came through her windshield like a guided missile it shattered the windshield and then you can see from a picture of her face it shattered her face she was in surgery for 10 hours as surgeons tried to repair the damage that had been done by this projectile uh, being thrown through uh, her windshield well, she uh, went home with a tracheotomy and was in recovery at home for months trying to get through this. Well, uh, naturally, Ryan Cushing was arrested for what he had done. Uh, he was taken to court. He was found guilty of uh, what he had done. And it was time for the sentencing. 
October 17, 2005, Victoria attended the sentencing, and this is what she said as she appealed to the judge. Despite all the fear and the pain I've learned from this horrific experience, I have much to be thankful for. Each day when I wake up, I thank God simply because I'm alive. I sincerely hope that you have learned from this awful experience, Ryan. There's no room for vengeance in my life. And I do not believe a long, hard prison term would do you, me, or society any good. Now, he could have gotten a 25-year prison sentence as a result of this, uh, by the way. Um, And, in fact, he was sentenced to six months as a result of her appeal. She went on to say, I truly hope that by demonstrating compassion and leniency, I've encouraged you to seek an honorable life. If my generosity will help you mature into a responsible, honest man whose graciousness is a source of pride to your loved ones in your community, then I will be truly gratified and my suffering will not have been in vain. Ryan, prove me right. I don't know what your reaction is when you hear a story like that. My first reaction is, could I have done that? If some smart-aleck teenager had done that to me, or maybe more to the point, could I have done that if this teenager had done that to my wife or to one of my kids? But obviously, there's a definition of mercy for you. And if you ask ourselves, what is our God like? What is Jesus like? Does he show mercy like that? Does he show mercy to the folks who don't deserve it, who haven't earned it? Who don't even appreciate it when when he shows it to us. Yeah, they'd be pretty much like Jesus, wouldn't it? So Jesus, who exemplifies the demonstration of mercy, says to his disciples and to us, be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Well, before we move on, I, I think it's important as we do our definition of this word mercy to ask, how is mercy Uh, Related to grace, what's the difference between grace and mercy? Uh, In this audience, I'm sure many of you know the stock definition we throw out in the church. Uh, Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's God's unmerited unmerited favor as he looks at our sins. Uh, Bono, the lead singer for uh, U2, uh, probably uh, expresses uh, this definition in a very appropriate way as he says, it's a mind-blowing concept. That God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. When thinking about karma, Bono said, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics and physical laws, every action is meant by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, you will sow stuff. God defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Well, that's grace. We don't have to depend on our own religiosity because God in his unmerited favor sent his son Jesus down to earth to die for every one of us so that we can be assured today that if we confess our sins, we're forgiven. 
That's grace. Mercy, however, is God's reaction to our misery. It's God doing something when he sees uh, that we are in pain. Um, One of the best illustrations I saw of this as I uh, was working on this text in the last couple weeks is a story about a, a mom Uh, whose son had dropped out of school. He began hanging with the wrong crowd. Uh, He got into drugs and alcohol. And one night he staggered home at 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, As uh, she heard him come into the house, she got out of the bed. And then the father, the husband, decided he'd get up and just see what she was doing, thinking maybe he'd find her in the kitchen crying uh, over uh, their son and what their son had been doing. Instead, he found her in the bedroom, uh, the bedroom of her son. She was kneeling by his bedside, stroking his matted hair. And the husband said, what are you doing? And the mother answered, he won't let me love him when he's awake. Some of you as parents can relate to that. You understand something of that kind of mercy uh, and compassion when you've got a child that you love and the child doesn't even know you love them, you try to communicate your love for the child and your mercy and your compassion for the child, and the child may even respond in anger. And you say, which parent knows that best? Well, that would be our Heavenly Father. He's the one that knows that feeling best. Uh, because uh, we can't begin to identify, I am sure, the number of times that God, as it were, had put his fingers through our matted hair when we didn't even know he was around. And he was showing us his tenderness and his compassion, his mercy, when we weren't even aware that he was doing it. But he did it anyway, kind of like uh, Jesus with the ten lepers. Remember that story in the New Testament? Jesus healed ten lepers. How many came back to thank him for it? One. One. Because God can show us his mercy. He can show us his compassion. And so often we don't even know that he's doing it and we take it for granted and don't acknowledge uh, that he's doing it. So Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. What does he mean by that? Well, be like the father. There are going to be occasions when you're going to show mercy and people aren't going to appreciate it. Can you keep showing mercy then? There are going to be occasions when you may do something for the ten lepers and nine of them aren't going to acknowledge it or in any way respond to you or let you know how grateful they are that you've done this act of mercy. Can you show mercy still? Well, Jesus did. Our Heavenly Father does. And so Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, if mercy is defined by Jesus, if it's defined by our Heavenly Father, and we want to know what mercy is, just look to them. What do we do with the last part of the statement? This is where the controversy comes, as much as there's controversy in this beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's some sort of condition here. In what sense is showing mercy a conditional truth? Well, there are three options that are given. Option number one is, does this mean that if I show people mercy, they will show me mercy? Kind of like uh, uh, the story about the uh, seven-year-old brother who was with his two-year-old little sister. Uh, He was in the room, and she grabbed a hold of his hair like two-year-olds can, and she started pulling for all he's worth, and he was screaming. So mom came into the room, and uh, she released the two-year-old's hand from the brother's hair, and she said, Oh, no, honey, you know that your baby sister didn't know what she was doing. She didn't understand that this this hurt, so 
you know, just remember that. The boy nodded his head and mom left the room. And 30 seconds later, mom heard the two-year-old screaming. Mom came back into the room and she said, "Uh, what's going on? Well, the son responded then saying, well, she knows now. That was a part of it that says, uh, you know, you, you receive what you give and you get back what you uh, have given uh, to others. There, there's some truth to this. Even the Hatfields and the McCoys learned that if you show mercy rather than vengeance, you're more likely to receive mercy. I was shocked when I found out this last week uh, that the Hatfield and McCoy feud formally ended just in 2003. Did you know that? June 14th of 2003, in Pikefield, Kentucky, the Hatfields and the McCoys gathered together to sign a document ending the feud. Uh, The feud began in 1878 when Randolph McCoy accused one of the Hatfields of stealing a hog. Uh, the, uh, The McCoys were shown to be wrong because one of the McCoys ultimately sided with the Hatfields and said, no, it didn't really happen. And, of course, the feud went on from there. In 1888, Uh, Elias and Hatfield was the first one who was killed uh, in this conflict. And then after that, there were 11 more uh, siblings, brothers that died as the Hatfields and the Coys went back and forth. And then in ensuing years, their battles were in the courts up to 2003 of this decade uh, as they uh, had their peace treaty. This is what they said. We do hereby informally declare an official end to all hostilities implied, inferred, and real between the families now and forevermore. We ask by God's grace and love that we be forever remembered as those that bound together the hearts of two families to form a family of freedom uh, in America. And so it certainly is true. If you finally get around to showing somebody some mercy, maybe you might get some mercy back. But is that what Jesus means? Show some mercy to uh, people around you and you're going to get some mercy back? Well, maybe there's some element of truth to that. But even as we noted with Jesus, he showed mercy to ten lepers. There was one that showed some measure of gratitude. So it's not necessarily true that if you show mercy to people, that you're guaranteed that you're going to get some sort of mercy back because we as human beings don't operate that way often enough. So the second potential meaning here is this suggesting That if I show mercy, that proves that I have, in fact, received mercy from God. Uh, It's the uh, fundamental principle that Paul gets at in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, from chapter 3 up through chapter 9, Paul is talking about grace. And what he says, if you examine that portion, is that if you have received the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, and you really know it, I mean, really know it, no one's going to have to ask you to be gracious. No one's going to have to ask you to give. You will give liberally. That's what he says in uh, uh, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. What is it that motivates the cheerful giver? Well, the giver that knows, I mean, really knows that they've received the grace of Jesus. So we can see uh, that principle fleshed out by uh, what Paul is saying in uh, in 2 Corinthians. But is that what uh, Jesus has in mind here? Uh, An an illustration that was telling this last week that helped me appreciate even more uh, the significance of the import of God's uh, grace. Uh, There was a nine-year-old boy named uh, Mark um, whose mother received a phone call from his teacher in the afternoon. Uh, 
Now, the uh, teacher said, Mrs. Smith, something unusual happened today in your son's third grade class. Your son did something that surprised me so much that I thought you should know about it immediately. Now, with that, uh, mom was getting a little bit nervous. Uh, the teacher continued, nothing like this has happened in all my years of teaching. This morning I was teaching a lesson on creative writing. And as I always do, I tell the story of the ant and the grasshopper. The ant works hard all summer and stores up plenty of food. But the grasshopper plays all summer and doesn't do any work. Winter comes and the grasshopper begins to starve because he has no food. So he begins to beg, please, Mr. Ant, you have so much food. Please let me eat, too. And then I said, boys and girls, it's your job to write the ending to the story. Your son, Mark, raised his hand and said, teacher, may I draw a picture, too? Well, yes, Mark, if you like, you may draw a picture, but first you must write the ending to the story. And then she went on, as is in previous years. A lot of the students ended the story by saying what happened is that the grasshopper came to the ant and uh, said, you know, can I have some food, too? And the ant said, well, sure, let's share. And the uh, ant shared his food with the grasshopper, and they both survived the winter. And then there were some students in class, and she said this always happens, too, uh, where the grasshopper came to the ant and said, you know, can I have some of your food? And the ant said, no, you didn't do any work. You don't eat. And, and that's how they ended the uh, story. Um, uh, Mark uh, ended his story by saying uh, that the grasshopper came to the ant and asked for food. And the ant gave the grasshopper all of his food and the ant died. And the picture that Mark put on the bottom of his page was three crosses. Now, I, I don't know if that story grabs you the way it grabbed me as I saw that this last week. But you think of something like that and say, yeah, that's what Jesus did for us, isn't it? He, he gave it all for us that we might, through his grace, have a life that we didn't uh, deserve. And. You know, is it is it that that Jesus is talking about? If you understand what I did for you, then you, in fact, will be merciful to others. Is, is that what he's talking about? The reason I have difficulty saying that, though, I believe in Scripture, we can prove the fact that if we understand God's grace, it's going to motivate behavior. I mean, that is clearly what Paul is saying in Second Corinthians. I don't think, however, that's what Jesus is saying. Because if you look at the force of the words that he says, he says, blessed are the merciful for what? They have received mercy? No, he says, for they will receive mercy. There's something yet in the future uh, for these folks who demonstrate mercy. Something they haven't already received, which would be the point uh, if we're talking about grace that we've received that motivates behavior. Now, this is not a foreign concept to the New Testament. There are a lot of uh, verses that indicate uh, that there's some sort of future mercy for us as believers. If you look at James Chapter 2 and verse 13. You don't have to look at it. I've got it on the PowerPoint this morning. James 2.13 says, Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone um, who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So there's some kind of future judgment that's going to take place. So you better be merciful. Just as a little footnote to that, uh, I came across a poignant quotation by Clarence Darrell, um, one of the more famous criminal lawyers in America. Uh, he, he said in writing to a, a fellow attorneys, if you want your client to be judged guilty, then fill the jury with Norwegians or Northern Europeans. If you want them to be acquitted, 
fill it with Southern Europeans, beware of Lutherans, especially Scandinavian Lutherans, which would be most of you with your backgrounds. Uh, They're almost sure to convict. If you have a Scandinavian Lutheran jury, plead your client guilty. Kind of a sobering truth uh, to us in this uh, part of America. But you you go into Matthew chapter 18, the second uh, statement. This is after uh, Jesus is talking about what's going to happen at uh, end times. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So he's talking about a situation where judgment's going to come at the end of the age. And he says, now, be careful, because at the judgment at the end of the age, if you haven't been forgiving in an appropriate way, well, it's going to impact the judgment at the end of the age. And you say, well, how can that be? And we'll get to that in just a moment. One more uh, uh, passage. This is uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, just a chapter later. In uh, chapter 6, verse 12 and following, Forgive us our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, And uh, continue, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you not forgive men their sins, then your Father will not forgive your sins. So we've got a variety of verses that say uh, there is something yet in the future, some kind of judgment, some sort of result uh, that that is going to be dependent upon your behavior now. Now, we can back up and say, well, what does this all mean? Fundamental rule of Scripture is you let Scripture interpret Scripture. Uh, We know from what Scripture says that God's grace is unmerited. You don't do one single thing to earn it or deserve it. It's not like if you show mercy, well, then that's a way for you to be sure you're going to go to heaven. Now, there's plenty of other Scriptures that indicate that's not what Jesus is saying, because that's not what grace means. But there are lots of scriptures that indicate that once you are a Christian, based upon God's unmerited favor, that we can be in fellowship with God or out of fellowship with God. You can quench the spirit of God in your life as a Christian. uh, Or you can have the spirit of God in your life powerfully. You can have a prayer life where you're experiencing the power of God, the presence of God, the favor of God. Or you can be the kind of Christian that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3 that he names the carnal Christian, whose works are wood, hay, and stubble, says Paul. That person's still going to go to heaven, clearly, from what Paul says. Uh, but when they get to heaven, all their works are going to be burned up because they haven't been demonstrating the, the behavior of God. So you can look at this simply and say, uh, does our good works have anything to do with our getting to heaven? The answer is no. They don't have anything to do with our getting to heaven. Uh, It's our trusting in Christ alone and what he has done, his unmerited favor. That's the only foundation for getting to heaven. But does our good works have something to do with our fellowship with God today? You bet it does. Uh, Does does our good works have something to do with rewards in heaven? Well, read Matthew 25 and you draw your own conclusion from what Jesus Christ himself says. It does have everything to do with our relationship with Jesus Christ today and uh, What we're going to experience in the way of rewards uh, when we get to heaven. So we can say, well, there's some implications of this then. Uh, The implications of showing mercy is that by my showing mercy, I'm uh, demonstrating I've got a relationship with Jesus. So I can ask, do you long for fellowship with Jesus? I mean, real fellowship with Jesus, presence of Jesus in your life? Well, then be merciful. Do you long for spiritual power? I've alluded to this on a number of occasions because it's such a telling book for me. But in the book of Ephesians, uh, when you have those two great pairs of the Apostle Paul, one in chapter one, 
where Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart might be opened, that we might see what the Heavenly Father has for us and what he has for us in heavenly places is all might and all power and all riches. So he's saying, claim it, claim it. But alas, there are a lot of Christians who don't claim it. So do you long for that? Well, then be merciful, uh, Jesus is saying. Do you long for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit? Well, then be merciful, because that's what follows from that. And then I alluded to this already. Can I be a Christian without a fellowship with God? Well, read 1 Corinthians 3. That's what it says. Or read Ephesians 4, 30 through 32. That's what it says. If there's clamor and wrath and malice and so on, so on, so on in my life, what does that tell me? Well, it tells me that I've quenched the spirit. And then in verse 32 of that passage, be kind and tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven you, Paul says. Be merciful. You'll receive mercy. Recently, a draft of Napoleon Bonaparte's will was sold in Paris for $149,000 in in U.S., I didn't realize this, but Napoleon claimed to be a Christian. Did you know that? Um, And uh, in his uh, last will and testament, uh, he uh, originally wrote of his uh, faith in Jesus Christ. He wrote his will on the island of St. Helena. Uh, And in the the will, uh, he wrote a first draft, and then he scratched out some words. Uh, The scratched out lines include, as a Christian, I forgive them. Uh, In the original draft, he forgave the enemy, the English. And in the final draft, he scratched that out uh, as well. Uh, In fact, the final copy of Napoleon's will reads, I die prematurely, assassinated by the English oligarchy. And Napoleon knew that as a Christian, he should be forgiving the English, even put that in the will initially, uh, and then scratched it out as he he allowed uh, his sin nature to take control. So what are we saying about mercy? Uh, What we're saying is uh, that if I show mercy, I'm showing the character of Jesus. If I show mercy, I'm showing uh, the character of my heavenly father. Uh, And if I show mercy, uh, it's an indication uh, that I can believe that I'm going to receive some mercy because uh, I'm in fellowship with God. I'm going to be able to experience what it is that God promises us as Christians that we can have as we continue our relationship with him. That's good news. Uh, I, I came across a rather long article uh, this last week on the history behind the tradition in America of uh, tying a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. And I spent a lot more time with this than I should have. It's, it's one of these things we do as preachers on occasion where you're fascinated with something. and You say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but I sure fascinated by this. And um, if you're interested I got a rather long article, you know, by uh, some historians that were trying to determine uh, the historicity of our custom, uh, what its origin is, uh, where we came up with this idea. There are a number of folks who say, well, it comes from the Civil War. Well, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of historical proof to substantiate that. Uh, In fact, best guess is uh, that the history of tying a yellow ribbon around an old oak tree uh, came from an account uh, that was shared with Curtis Bach. Curtis Bach is a, was a Pennsylvania uh, jurist, a fairly well-known Pennsylvania jurist. Uh, and he heard this story from Kenyon J. Scudder, who was the first superintendent of Chino uh, Penitentiary. This is a story that happened about 1950. According to the story, what happened is that there was a convict uh, at the prison 
uh, who had been in prison for five years. Uh, he came from a uh, part of the United States uh, where the people were not highly educated. Uh, and because of that, uh, during the time that he was in prison, he didn't receive any phone calls, didn't make any phone calls. They just didn't do that. Uh, his people weren't letter writers, so they didn't write uh, to one another. There has been no correspondence between him and his loved ones for five years. And so finally, as he was getting out of prison, he just jotted a note and sent it back uh, to his family uh, and said, I'm I'm coming home by way of train. Uh, I'll understand if you don't want to come in and meet me. Um, so if you're interested in, uh, in in meeting me, would you put a white ribbon in an apple tree? So it was an apple tree, not an oak tree. And it was white ribbon, not a yellow ribbon. But in any case, would you put a white ribbon in the apple tree by the train station? Now, according to the story, as he was coming back on the train, realizing he hadn't been with his loved ones for five years, he was getting all anxious. You know, what if they don't want to see me? I don't know if I could bear it. You know, I, I want so much to be able to see my family. I miss them so much. But what if they don't want to see me? I don't know that I can look. So as he was fretting, the pastor next to him uh, found out about what was going on. And he shared this with him. And the pastor, oh, well, surely your family is going to want to see you. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I did these terrible things. And I'm not sure if they're going to want to see me. And then finally, the prisoner said, I don't think I can bear to look. I'm going to close my eyes when we approach the train station. Would you look at the uh, apple tree next to the train station and tell me if there's a white ribbon? And if there's no white ribbon, I'll just stay in the train. I'll pass on by and I'll start my life someplace else. According to the story, as they approached the train station, the new friend was squealing in delight. He said, open your eyes, look, because there wasn't just one white ribbon on the apple tree. The entire tree was filled with white ribbons. Now, the reason that story excited me so much is that I think it's yet another perfect picture of how our Heavenly Father responds to you and me. Now, if we look at our lives and look at our actions, look at our behavior honestly, we can say there's, there's no way my Father, my Heavenly Father, would want to be putting some yellow ribbon on an oak tree for me not given who I am, not given what I've done. And the uh, truth of Scripture is as we look at the tree on that hill called Calvary, we find out that it is covered with white ribbons. Whereby our Heavenly Father is saying, I love you. I sent my son to die for you. I not only want to show you my grace, I want to show you my mercy. And so Jesus Christ in that spirit says, if you know the Heavenly Father, uh, if you know me, well, then know this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word of your son, Jesus. I'm thankful for the many ways this last week you reminded me of the significance of the lessons I need yet to learn about how to apply this. Father, I may know more than most, better than some, uh, the, the, the truth of this. But the reality is, knowing the truth isn't what you want. You want us to show the mercy. So, Father, even now, uh, prompt our thinking of maybe that neighbor that needs our mercy today or this week. Or that member of our family who perhaps... Uh, comes in at 3 o'clock in the morning, or at least is involved in behavior we don't like, that still needs our mercy. 
Remind us of that person at work that aggravates us and irritates us, and uh, we're inclined uh, to show vengeance. God, help us to see what mercy looks like for someone like that that is the, the top dog and abusing the power that they have. And then, Father, in this church, I pray that you'll enable us to see what mercy looks like for us as a church in the western suburbs of Minneapolis where you have blessed us with so much in the way of material gifts. And there are so many people around the world that do not enjoy the benefits that we have. God, may you raise up more in our midst like Sarah and Andrea who are prepared to go out in the name of Jesus and show mercy to people in Ethiopia or wherever we find them in the world who need to know there's a God in heaven who cares. I'm reminded of what Mother Teresa once said when she was criticized for the fact that uh, she was showing so much mercy and uh, was told, why don't you teach people how to fish instead of just giving them fish all the time? To which she said, there are a lot of people who don't even know how to fish. And if somehow they can understand something about the love of Jesus, well, maybe that'll motivate a relationship with him. Father, that's our desire, that we may show mercy, that people may ask what motivates this mercy, and that will lead them to you. Uh, So, God, in that spirit, I pray that you'll continue to remind us of what Jesus said this week, not just so that we can have another Bible reflection, but remind us so that we can act mercifully to the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.